If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. And as Adam mentioned, there are some handouts on the music stand there in the center aisle. If you didn't get a chance to pick one of those up, uh, feel free to grab one of those. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we thank You for this great privilege that it is to gather on a Sunday evening to open Your Word together in this place, to study it and to grow in our understanding of our great need. Lord, as we are struck with uh, the depravity of our nature because of our sin in Adam, may we all the more glory and marvel and wonder at the cross, at the hope of the gospel, at Your work of sovereign grace uh, to redeem us from our lost and rebellious and foolish condition that we were in. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word from Romans 5, reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please be seated. And one of the fundamental commitments of Covenant Presbyterian Church is what we call patrimony. That is an acknowledgement that we come from a rich heritage. There ought to be an appropriate respect toward our church fathers and toward those great minds that the Lord has been pleased to give to the history of the church at just the right time. Men and women who have stood for truth to identify error to articulate an ongoing commitment to the authority, sufficiency, and the clarity of God's Word. It's important that we recognize that our heritage is not something that arises out of our immediate generation, but we have an important connection to the past. Both American culture and American evangelicalism tend to have a disdain toward history. We tend to be somewhat prideful, and as C.S. Lewis labeled us, to have chronological snobbery, dismissing those who have preceded us as though our own insights alone are sufficient. And so if the only thing that matters in the mind of most is my own historical experience, then there will be a suspicion of anything that reeks of history that might come from tradition. 
anything that might come from the past, things like church creeds or confessions of faith, those things are dismissed as outdated and irrelevant. Carl Truman, you'll see there on your page in his book, The Creedal Imperative, says, such an attitude, an attitude of suspicion toward the authority of institutions, inevitably has an impact on the way creeds and confessions are viewed. The person who has no real practical respect for the church as an institution is inevitably going to have little respect for the documents that church has produced and or authorized as part of the basic means by which she identifies herself, witnesses to the world, and maintains some level of order within her ranks. And one of the ways in which this patrimony is presented, is preserved rather, is through confessions of the church. And we at Covenant Presbyterian Church were referred to, of course, as Presbyterian, as Reformed, and as confessional. And as a confessional church, our pastors, our elders, and our deacons of this church affirm the summation of Scripture contained in the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Shorter and Larger Catechisms. But there are many other important Reformed creeds and confessions that arose out of this period of Reformation church history. Confessions which are in line with the Westminster Confession of Faith as they too look to the final authority of God's Word. Now, creeds and confessions can be a very helpful thing to us as a summary of doctrinal truth from Scripture. But those creeds and confessions are always subservient, that is, under the authority of God's Word, and they are derivative. That is, they look to the Word of God even for their own summation and articulation of truth. Now, one such confession of faith from the Reformation era is known as the Canons of Dort. Our resident church historian, Bob Macy, will tell you that historic confessions and creeds arise in a context out of particular historical issues. They do not come out of a vacuum, and oftentimes the context of which creeds and confessions arise is because of false teaching that's beginning to creep into the church, and the church fathers then gather and needing to respond to that false teaching respond through confessions or creeds. As an example, let's imagine for a moment that your son or daughter or a friend has gone away to college, the university, and they come home after their first semester, and you sit down and you talk with them about their experience, and their first semester on the church or on the university campus has just been overwhelming. In their philosophy class, they have faced all sorts of Western ideologies. As they walk around campus, they encounter all sorts of Eastern religions that are represented there. In their history class, they're presented with this bizarre historiography view. And in all of that confusion, you sit down with them, and rather than being overwhelmed with everything false that's out there, you sit down and you return to the truth. Let's look to the Bible and what God's Word affirms about the triune nature of God about the fallen condition of man, about the sufficiency of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, about his return at the end of the age, and about how all of that influences and impacts your ethics as you live there in that atmosphere of the college campus. Similarly, this is how the Canons of Dort came to be, a written reply to false teaching that was beginning to creep into the Reformed Church of the Netherlands. 
And this false teaching was undermining the very foundation of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, that this wondrous salvation, which is ours in Christ Jesus, that has come to us through the eternal counsel of God, that this salvation accomplished through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and applied to lost sinners through that sovereign grace and work of the Holy Spirit. These are the doctrines that you hear all the time from this pulpit, from this church, but these are things that were being called into question in the Reformed Church in the Netherlands. There's that wonderful crescendo at the end of Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is a wonderful passage which exalts the Lord our God in His work of salvation. It gives Him the praise and honor and glory because He is the one who has saved us. And yet this is what some within the church were seeking to lay aside. And this is what some within the church today continue to question. So what doctrines in particular were under attack, and where did this attack arise? Why take some time here in the fall of 2018 to spend several Sunday evenings covering these matters and discussing the doctrines of grace? Well, as Pastor Williams mentioned this morning, this marks the 400th year when the Synod of Dort convened in 1618 and on into 1619. And they met both to affirm what the Church of the Netherlands believes about Scripture and also to articulate errors that were beginning to make headway into the church. And you'll see a basic outline of the content of the canons there on your handout. And you can find online if you were just to simply Google uh, the canons of Dort with proof texts, and you can find uh, a copy of that in a Word document. You'll see that there are five heads of doctrine, and following each head of doctrine are a rejection of errors and then a conclusion. And so if the synod was convened, if it was convened to push back against false teaching, how did this false teaching find inroads into the Reformed Church of the Netherlands in the first place? You've probably heard of the name Arminius before. Jacob or Jacobus, as his name was in Latin, or even James Arminius, as he was known in English. We'll just call him Arminius. He was born in 1516 and died in six in 1609, 1560 to 1609. He was a student of Theodore Beza, and Beza was Calvin's successor in Geneva. And so Arminius was a pastor in the Reformed Church of the Netherlands and also a professor at the university. And the controversy came when Arminius began teaching a series of sermons on the book of Romans, teaching things like this, that even if Adam had remained obedient in the garden, death would still have come to the human race. He also taught that man maintains free will after the fall. The fall had its effects upon man's nature, but man's nature essentially remains free. And based upon that free will, he can choose to respond to the gospel or not to respond to the gospel. And he was also an outspoken critic of the Reformed doctrine of predestination. 
So while the Reformed Church taught that God's divine election was not based upon anything within man, Arminius taught that when the Bible talks about election, predestination, and foreknowledge, what he taught was that God looks through the corridors of history and he sees those who put their faith in him. And based upon their faith in the Lord and his foreknowledge of what they will do, he chooses them to be his own. That's really the predominant view within evangelicalism in America. But that'll be Adam's point next week. Right? Okay. And so this teaching of Arminius was being embraced by others within the Reformed Church of the Netherlands, beginning to cause division within the church. And so Arminius dies in 1609, and his followers, known as Remonstrants, they prepare a summary statement of what they believe, and their position was stated in five articles. Now, Remonstrance is simply uh, a statement, an article, belief, summarized in these five different statements that were presented. Now, these five articles, of course, became the starting point for the Reformed Church to respond against this this false teaching. Those are the five heads of doctrine that you see on your outline, a response to those followers of Arminius. Now, you've heard these referred to as the five points of Calvinism, really acting as counterpoints to the errors that were taught by Arminius and his followers. And the acronym TULIP that we use is a helpful arrangement of these five points to help us remember the main teaching of the confession. Now, originally, the canons of Dorder are in a different order. It was only about a little over 100 years ago that they were put in that particular order to help us to remember them and make it a little bit more, uh, I guess, memorable of of an acrostic. And so these five articles that arose from the followers of Arminius, again, were in the form of a protest or a doctrine document stating their beliefs and where they differed from the reformers. Now, the relationship between the church and state was much different at this time in history. And so, these civil authorities would hear from the remonstrants or the Arminians and those opposed to him. And the Synod of Dort judged those two opposing articles against the Word of God and ruled that the remonstrants' teaching was contrary to God's Word. And so the Senate, as it met in 1618 and 19, was made up of 84 delegates gathered from all the Reformed Protestant churches of Europe, from Holland and Great Britain, from Germany, Switzerland, and France. And so there was representation much broadly, and not just from the Netherlands. Now, what was at stake in the early 17th century? And is there anything at stake for us today? Well, notice the quote here from Cornelis Venema, who's president of Mid-American Reformed Seminary. In a great little book that he wrote on the canons of Dort, he says, at stake was the Reformed confession of the sovereign grace of God in salvation. Nothing less than the heart of the gospel remains just as much at stake today. Now, maybe at first that seems to you to be a little bit harsh, The doctrine of God's election, is that really something that is so central to the gospel? Isn't that more of a secondary issue? You see, if a sinner plays a part in saving himself, then this undermines the clear biblical teaching that we are saved by grace alone. And if my salvation is somehow dependent upon my choosing Jesus, then what assurance do I have that I will continue to choose Him all the way until the end? 
And so I think Venema is right that these doctrines really do get at the heart of the gospel. These are important things for us to understand. I'll skip over this lengthy quote from J.I. Packer. It's a wonderful one for you to spend some time on later, but go to the next one there by John Murray, where he says that the gospel itself rests upon the assumption of total inability. It is the doctrine of man's utter sinfulness and inability that leads men to cease to trust in themselves and shuts them up to reliance upon God's grace. It is only on the presupposition of total depravity and complete human impotence that the full glory and power of the gospel can be declared. And so as we give our attention to the content of the canons of Dort, we'll be focusing this evening upon the third head of doctrine, which is on the corruption of man. And although this is the third in the canons, it's our first point in our TULIP acronym, total depravity. Now, if we go back even further in church history to the fourth century, there was a British monk named Pelagius who said that man's will was not fallen, that man can still obey the law and earn his salvation, that Adam's sin is not imputed to the human race. Now, St. Augustine was instrumental in pushing back against this heresy And in fact, Pelagius and his views were condemned by the church as heretical in nature because they really were striking at the very heart of man's deep need and therefore at the heart of the gospel. Now, the Arminian view is not strict Pelagianism. It's more semi-Pelagianism, which is sort of like saying it's only (laughs) semi-heretical, which of course is not a desirable place to be. Now, the Arminian position is that there is a prior or general working of God's grace in all men, enabling them to believe or not believe. But ultimately, the final step, as if, to, if one really believes or not, is left to the individual sinner. The will of man is not so tarnished, you see, that he cannot choose God for himself. Again, Venema, the biblical teaching concerning man's condition as a sinner unable and incompetent to save himself is the setting within which the biblical teaching of salvation by God's grace alone flourishes. And so if we understand what the Bible teaches about our fallen nature in Adam, then we will have a much greater appreciation and awareness and wonder before the God who saved us from this utterly helpless and hopeless condition. And so the way in which you understand man's condition has everything to do with the way that you understand God's saving work. And so the first article on human corruption is the effect of the fall upon human nature. And so what's being addressed here is the contrast between man's original state as he was created by God in the garden and man's sinful state after the fall. So what was man like before the fall? What was man originally like? How was he created? We know the children's catechism well. He was holy and he was happy, right? He was in the image and likeness of God. He was good and he was righteous and holy. He was capable of doing what God told him to do. He understood the word of God and what was required of him. 
He was given a charge by his creator to walk in perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. And, and this is important, he had the ability to do that which God called him to do because he was created without sin and without defect. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer six, and the Heidelberg was written some 55 years before the Canons of Dort, says that God created man good and after his own image in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. So there was no confusion on Adam's part in the garden. He knew why he was created. He knew his creator, the living God. He had a love for God. He was happy. He was holy. He found great joy, and he found great delight in glorifying his God. But man rebelled against God by his own free will. This is one of the great mysteries of biblical truth. How could one who is created in holiness willingly choose to sin against God in such a hateful and self-centered manner? We will never have all of our questions answered in this life as to how Adam and Eve could sin. But notice the important doctrines here that we must hold to. There is no defect in man that would lead him to sin. God is not responsible for sin. God is not the author of sin. Man freely chooses to rebel against God. The responsibility for his sinful rebellion lies with him alone. The narrative in Genesis 3 is clear as it reveals to us the willing disobedience of Adam and Eve. So what are the results of this rebellion against God? What effects does man's sinful act have upon his nature? Well, the canons state that because of his revolt against God, what man has done is he has forfeited all of those gifts from God, those gifts of righteousness, those gifts of holiness, those gifts of love for his glory in all things. And in their place, he has brought upon himself blindness, terrible darkness, futility, and distortion of judgment in his mind, perversity, defiance, and hardness in his heart and will, and impurity in all his affections. And so man freely, willingly chooses to lay aside that which is good and right and holy, and in its place chooses darkness, futility, and foolishness. And notice here the scope of the effects of sin upon mankind. Remember in John chapter 3, when Jesus is conversing with Nicodemus, and he says that people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. In Luke 1.79, in part of Zechariah's prophecy, he states that Jesus has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Ephesians 5.8 says, for at one time you were darkness. Not only were you in darkness, not only were you surrounded by darkness, but you were darkness. You were equated with darkness itself. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so here we read not only in Colossians 1, not only about the description of our fallen condition, 
that we are lost and we are in that domain of darkness, but we read also about God's sovereign work, that he is the one who transfers us from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And 1 Peter 2.9 reads, He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we see the connection between our lost and our undone condition and the need for God's intruding grace to save us. So it was a darkness of heart and it was a darkness of will. It was a darkness of captivity that affected the entire man. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And even more, the effects of sin lead to futility of mind. We are futile in our thinking. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin. We read about those in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And so notice here that Paul describes the effects of sin and its scope. The effects of the fall upon our minds, upon our understanding, upon our hearts. In other words, the entirety of man's nature, the totality of his being is ravaged by the fall. Our hearts, our will, and our affections are all affected by our rebellion against God. We are perverse, we are defiant, we are hard of heart and impure. Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans 3.10, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then Article 2 on human corruption goes on to teach about the spread of this corruption. And here, the framers of the canons are seeking to answer the question, how does Adam's sin become the sin of humanity? Being corrupt, he, Adam, brought forth corrupt children. Now, Pelagius, again in the fourth century, had taught that corruption spreads from one generation to the next by imitation. Children essentially see their parents sin and emulate those sinful patterns. Of course, we know that that's true, but it's much more than that. For Pelagius, that was the extent of it as he denied original sin. Calvin said that original sin is that hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul which first makes us liable to God's wrath and then also brings forth in us those works which Scripture calls works of the flesh. So here Calvin is referring to the original sin that we are born in, we are born in that corruption, and then the actual sin or transgressions that come from it. 
David in Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And David here is not speaking about the manner in which he was conceived, but rather he recognizes that he is corrupt and guilty by nature because of the sin of Adam. And our text earlier from Romans chapter 5, 12 through 19 makes that clear, teaches us about the imputation of Adam's sin to the human race. And so we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, then His righteousness is ours. It is reckoned as ours. It is imputed to us. If we are in Adam, then we are still in our sins, still in darkness, in captivity, guilty, and under the just condemnation of God. And so Adam's sin was a transgression of the whole human race. All sinned in him, and death came to all. And Article 3 goes on to speak about total inability, that the result of the imputation of Adam's sin is that all of humanity is born in a state of sin and corruption, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. And so without the intervening work of the Holy Spirit, we are unable and unwilling to come to God. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and similarly in chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts. Jeremiah 13.23 can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Neither can you do good or are accustomed to doing evil. Herman Bobink says in his Reformed Dogmatics, the human heart is corrupt, the mind is darkened, the soul guilty and impure, the human spirit is proud, errant and polluted, the human conscience is stained and in need of cleansing, the human desire, inclination, and will reach out to what is forbidden and powerless to do good. The eyes, the ears, the feet, the mouth are in the service of unrighteousness. In a word, sin is not located on and around humans, but within them and extends to the whole person and the whole of humankind. So man's will is in bondage. The sinner is not free to seek after God unless God is the one who grants that freedom. Again, Venema, no more than a dead man can walk, no more than a blind man could see, no more than a slave could free himself, no more could a sinner, apart from God's saving rec recreation of him in Christ by the Spirit, save himself. 
And then on briefly to Articles 4 and 5 within this particular, art, or this particular canon, that Article 4 and 5 speak about the inadequacy of the light of nature and the inadequacy of the law. First, the inadequacy of the light of nature. See, fallen man retains some notion of God. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 1. All men know that God exists from looking at creation and from being created in the image of God. They know that God exists, and yet they choose to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And from what they know from that general revelation, it is not sufficient for salvation for man's condition. And even though the light in nature is clear, in various ways, the canons of Dort say, in various ways, man completely distorts this light as he suppresses it in unrighteousness. Well, cannot man do some good with this remaining light of nature? We see all sorts of good things around us, don't we? We see all sorts of acts of benevolence and charity and so forth. What are we to make of those things? Well, look at how the Heidelberg Catechism defines a good work. What are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for God's glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. And so sinful man in this lost and fallen and hardened condition is unable and unwilling to do anything that is good and pleasing to the Lord. And Article 5 speaks about the inadequacy of the law itself, that the law cannot save. This is not the purpose of the law. Rather, the law exposes sin. It convicts man of guilt. We read in Galatians 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So this strikes at that very notion that Pelagius was teaching, that perhaps there are some who could earn their own righteousness or salvation through their own obedience to the law, contrary to what we read in Galatians chapter 3. And in Romans 7, Paul points out that the problem is not with the law itself, but the problem is with my fallen nature, and the law serves as an instrument to reveal my sin and drive me to see my need for Christ Jesus. So neither the light of nature or the law of God are adequate for our great need. Now, the point of the canon is not to say that man is as bad as he could be, but it is to say that sin is pervasive, that no part of man's nature is unaffected. His will is corrupt, his intellect is fallen, his emotions are self-focused and desirous of autonomy, his actions show him to be a slave to sin. Look at this wonderful lengthy quote from Thomas Watson. Sin enslaves the soul. Sinners are content to be under the command of sin. They are willing to be slaves. They love their chains. They wear their sins, not as fetters, but as ornaments. They rejoice in iniquity. What freedom has a sinner to his own confusion when he can do nothing but what sin will have him do. He is enslaved in the house of bondage. Satan is a tyrant over the souls of men. 
He fills their heads with error and their hearts with malice. He rules men's minds and blinds them with ignorance. He rules their wills and captures their hearts to obey him. Every man by nature is in the house of bondage. He grinds in the devil's mill and is at his command. But God takes his elect out of the house of bondage, beats off the chains and fetters of sin, and brings them into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus Christ redeems captives. He ransoms sinners by price and rescues them by force. Oh, what a mercy it is to be brought out of the house of bondage, to be made subjects of the Prince of Peace. Then after this head of doctrine, the synod goes on to look to list some errors that they reject, uh, which we'll skip for sake of time this evening, but you can look at on your own. And just in closing, let me touch on a couple of reasons why I think it's so important for us to keep before us the biblical teaching of man's total and corrupt fallen nature. One is that we would understand that salvation is a work of one, that salvation is a work of sovereign grace alone, a work of monergism, work of one. Second, that we would be more readily able to discern errors, errors that are taught about man's nature and how that might affect other errors as well. One such error in our own denomination, there are some who seek to deny that certain desires within man are sinful. And if certain desires within are not sinful, then they are not things to be mortified that is put to death. And so if I have underlying sort of inclinations, perhaps toward one sexual proclivity or another, that those aren't really things that I can address. Those are things that are just part of my identity. And if that's the case, then they are not things that need to be laid aside and put to death and walked in obedience unto the Lord. And listen finally as we close to this wonderful quote by Joel Beeking. He says, limiting the extent of the fall by exempting some aspect of man's being from its effects opens the way for fallen man to be his own savior. If his intellect is not darkened, then he can find salvation by the use of reason and improve himself through education. If his will is not enslaved, then man has the final say in his salvation quite apart from God's will. If man's body does not bear the marks of the fall, then defects, deformities, disease, aging, and death are natural and normal for our race, not evils to be opposed and overcome or enemies. Christ died to defeat. Let us ask God to show us ever more profoundly the tragic results of our fall, that we might understand ever more profoundly the amazing wonders of the gospel. And this is where, when we think about the doctrines of grace, that we need, of course, to keep all of them in whole. When we spend time this evening talking about man's total depravity, we ought not to go out from here with that weight of guilt upon us, of course, but taking, as Beaky does, I think, so masterfully here, driving us to see the hope and the glorious hope that is ours in Christ alone. And as we come back next week and continue this series, we'll build more and see that glorious, wonderful hope in the sovereign work of election. We need an accurate understanding of our depravity. 
We need to understand that our desires are sinful and in need of the cleansing and redeeming work of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your work of grace, that you have saved us from our lost condition, a condition that we willingly created because of our enmity against you. We were justly deserving sinners of, of your wrath, and yet you saved us by sending your Son, who died for us while we were yet your enemies. What wonderful grace has been made ours through Christ Jesus. May we ever marvel and wonder and long for a greater understanding of this grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.